0: In this episode, I am joined by Karel Kaleski. Together, we discuss the use of samples from biobanks and his work exploring neurodegenerative diseases with metabolomics. Throughout our conversation, Karel shares valuable insights on selecting brain tissue samples from biobanks, and he also sheds light on his discoveries regarding the metabolism of both Parkinson's and Alzheimer's disease. He also shares his interesting perspective, navigating biological interpretation of his results, as a computer scientist turned metabolomist. The Metabolomist is the podcast where we listen to the stories whispered by metabolomic data. I am Alice Limonciel, and this season we will examine the application of metabolomics in the clinics and the place of data interpretation in this field. Welcome to this episode of The Metabolomist. Today, I'm joined by Karol Kalecki. Hello.
1: Hi, Elise. It's my pleasure to be here.
0: I'll introduce you a bit for the people who don't know you. So, you did your pre-doctoral studies in your native Czech Republic before moving to the United States, where you graduated in computer science and recently completed your PhD in biomedical studies, right? Yes, Yeah. You did your dissertation research at the Center of Metabolomics at the Baylor, Scott & White Research Institute in Dallas in the laboratory of Teodoro Bottiglieri, And this is how you got acquainted with metabolomics. Can you tell us a little bit about this?
1: This was my first experience with metabolomics. And before, you know, I had only that background in informatics and computer science with some outreach to other areas of, of biomedicine. But not really doing any real experiments with live tissue at any lab work, white work.
0: Yes, because what I understood is you started your studies even studying economics, right? And then you, probably the computer science is the thing that took you to a very different field.
1: Yes, it was a university of economics for my undergrad study. And they have a faculty of informatics and statistics and that's where my department was, but because of the economics nature of the university we had half of the classes in that field in Mm -hmm. all those economics and marketing classes management and things like that so it was a very good background to decide later what i wanted
0: yeah it's really interesting
1: and eventually i was attracted by the field of medicine biomedicine that's where my later studies
0: yeah. And so your dissertation, the the PhD that you, you recently uh, completed, was focused on the application of metabolomics to study Parkinson's and Alzheimer's diseases. And this will actually be the focus of the two papers that we'll discuss today, where you're the first author. Mm-hmm. Uh, as we record this episode, you're still working at this research institute um, as a data scientist handling analysis of various biomedical projects, right? Yes. yes. Yeah, that's right. So can you tell us a bit, how was your first contact with metabolomics when you discovered this technique? Uh, did something particularly appeal to you? Did you find it interesting for a specific reason? At
1: the beginning, I didn't know what metabolomics is. Of and course. Makes sense. As the, you know, with some bioinformatics background, I knew obviously about genetics. I was sending some genetic data before transcriptomics, but About metabolomics, I never really heard, and that's why I wasn't even attracted to it much. I thought it's it's not a thing, (laughs) but that that was a mistake and accidentally I ended up doing metabolomics. This is actually a funny story because in my program at the beginning, we had a lab rotation across different labs where you can get some experience. And later decide which one we want to work with to your PhD. In. Mm-hmm. And at the beginning, I chose those three labs. And the first one was about the data processing and, the, and that's where I thought I would end up. Mm-hmm. But this lab got closed because they were changing the research conception in their section. The second lab was. Uh, very clinically oriented and doing some genomics things, but it turned out that because they are part of the clinical part of the hospital, I was not eligible to join it from my university, so I couldn't I mean, so I ended up in the third level. Yeah, that was the, the metabolomics, and I, I think I really like it. it ended up like this, because it wasn't my first choice But after actually looking to the field, I can tell that it's rapidly developing and it's showing the the real cover that it has. Yeah,
0: it's true that the field has evolved a lot in the last year. It's a relatively young field. From what I understand, you've been doing quite a lot of the tasks that relate to metabolomics, so your expertise at the beginning was into the data analysis and the data handling. But I think you also did your own measurements and maybe your own sample prep as well.
1: Exactly. So in this PhD program, I was doing most of the work, lab work. So it included specific targeted pathways in the analysis on the mass-spec liquid chromatography, as well as some broader assays spanning across many pathways. We also did some Dimensional gas chromatography, untargeted experiments. We had some brain tissue, human brains, human plasma. We had also a mice colony to study something. Mm-hmm. Uh, part of the targeted assays where was selected you know, many liquid classes, checking that. And uh, uh, later we also performed some uh, genomics and proteomics experiments. From all uh, those data, you know, some papers. I already published. Some papers are in the preparation and some papers are still waiting for me to of write. Of
0: course, that's the usual way with the PhD, yes. But did you find it challenging to have to do all those things or was it on the opposite side kind of a chance to be able to see all the aspects of the work within your PhD?
1: I expected it to be challenging, but it was really helpful for me. And now with all the data scientist background, I think I have a very a unique perspective on the whole process.
0: Yeah, I think you really have a nice profile indeed. As you mentioned, you've handled other types of omics as well. What are the main differences that you've, you've seen with working with metabolomic data? How is it different from genomic or other kind of omics?
1: It's definitely different, even though in some aspects it's similar because it's all biological data. They tend to be large. You don't always have as many subjects as you would like. <laughs> and that makes it change up. But Also, if you think about genomics, it's quite stable. You measure the, the genes and you know whether the tissue is little bit degraded you can still recover some dna from yeah it and measure it but with metabolomics it's very different in this respect. it is very dynamic and all those concentrations keep changing all the time and it really matters how the quality of the tissue samples is
0: mm-hmm. Yeah, this maybe will be also the answer to my next question but I wanted to ask you if there's something that you wish you had known before starting your work with metabolomics. Is there something that you know now with the years of experience preparing and using this data that you wish you'd known from the beginning?
1: Well, I think there would be many little things because as you gain experience in the field, you start realizing that some things that you might have done differently mean or with the analysis or it would save you now as a lot of time. Well, it's a work going through this process and learning those things.
0: Yeah. So there's not one single thing that comes to mind where maybe you could save some trouble for the people who are listening.
1: Uh, perhaps you can start already with selecting your samples very, very carefully. Because, <laughs> you
0: know,
1: sometimes you just go by some major features like the main groups of the samples you can get them either, but later you find out that some of those patients don't really fit the profile that you would like and you better leave them out completely
0: yeah and this is interesting also for the type of samples you used in the papers we will discuss because uh you use samples from a biobank right I guess you have a kind of list of possible samples and you pick the ones that would fit your study. So, in that case, the better you prepare the characteristics that you need for your samples, the more likely it is that you'll have samples that are useful at the end, right?
1: Right, right. For example, we selected subjects with Parkinson's disease that had dementia and those that do- they didn't have dementia. And only later we realized that some of those non-demented had a mild cognitive impairment already, and some didn't. And we already wanted to analyze it, and we managed to analyze it, and we saw some significant differences, even though it wasn't the point of them. And that there were some mixed pathologies. For example, one subject had multiple sclerosis, or or other neurodegenerative diseases, and we didn't want to mix them with the main one. So we excluded them completely.
0: Yes. And when you get patients with multiple pathologies, you also get patients with multiple treatments as well. So that's another layer also that might interfere with your experiment, of course. We said in our preparation that we wanted to talk a bit about biobanks and so how to choose samples from biobanks. So what are things that people should look out for or think of in advance when they want to use samples from biobanks. Do you have any advice for this?
1: Yes, definitely. It's a little bit different from using biofluids like plasma or urine. The, those things you do use for discovering biomarkers because it's non-invasive and that's very useful. But if you are looking into the more specifics of the disease, you want to really get down to those characteristics you better look exactly at the place where the pathology is so in in this case case
0: yeah because in the case of those papers you had brain tissue samples that's why you yeah we didn't mention mention that yet Mm
1: -hmm. yeah Yeah. and with the tissue it's a part of the body and it has very specific environment it has some temperature it has constant flux of oxygen and nutrition and you don't really do biopsy on live people. You have to wait until he die, mm-hmm. and then you do the autopsy and get some of the tissue out, some of the brains out. Mm-hmm. And suddenly, all the conditions for the tissue change. You don't have oxygen, so mm-hmm. you become hypoxic the tissue or hypercapnic, lots of CO two. It changes the pH suddenly some enzymes will not work as efficiently you don't have the temperature it all affects how all the reactions are going on and you you don't have the influx of energy so everything starts decaying, there is no immunity the microorganisms start invading the tissue and it it changes everything Mm -hmm. and when I was looking at other studies in AD or PD that were working with real human brain tissue. I found out, at least in the PD case, that half of the studies and the difference between the samples with the lowest post-mortem collection interval and those with the largest post-mortem collection interval, more than 24 hours. And sometimes even several days. And, and Sounds like a lot. <laughs> that's a lot. Imagine yeah. you, you do your grocery shopping you know, so, somewhere. You, you buy a piece of piece and okay. you put it in the kitchen counter and wait maybe a couple of hours. But you don't really want to wait several days.
0: No. Definitely yeah, not.
1: Then, then it's like comparing, you know, mm-hmm. apples and pineapples. And then, is it really worth yeah. in such a
0: And um, so when you, uh, when you search through data banks for samples, they usually give you that information? Is that always included in the sample descriptions?
1: Yes. If it's your yeah. bank, they provide this. Mm-hmm.
0: And do you know of any ways, let's say for someone who maybe gets samples or even animal samples that were collected by other people, for example, um, and they d- may not have that information. Do you know of any way to use the data to tell you about this? Are there any markers of, of the quality of brain tissue samples that you know of?
1: There were some experiments with mice and they were checking, I think adenosine or one of those molecules and based off that levels, They could tell if the metabolism was stopped at that moment, because for that we use microwave device. It's a specialized instrument for mice that microwaves the brain instantly in one second to disable all the metabolic processes. And They could tell by measuring that compound if it was decaying or not. So perhaps something that just might be used with human tissue. Mm -hmm.
0: Okay. Thank you. Before we move on to discussing the papers, is there anything else you'd like to say about biobank or about your experience with metabolomics in general?
1: Yeah, I think it's just really important to consider this factor, this collection interval for those tissue. So if it's a good biobank, they have a, you know, pre-approval from those people to immediately collect. The tissue after they the. So in our case, in our mm-hmm. studies, we had this post-mortem interval only three hours on average. Three hours after that, the tissue was already in the freezer. That sounds it. decent. It was homogeneous across the groups.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is also important once you do what we discussed the papers, but once you interpret the results, it's also important to be confident that whatever you see in your analysis is not likely to come from the study design or how the samples were preserved or collected. So that's already a relief, I think, from the interpretation point of view. Yes, exactly. Let's continue with the first paper we'll discuss is titled One Carbon Metabolism in Alzheimer's Disease and Parkinson's Disease uh, Brain Tissue and your first author. Um, before we go any deeper, do you maybe want to give us a quick tour of the aims and the findings of the paper for people who haven't read it yet?
1: So in this paper, we specifically targeted the uh, one carbon metabolism pathway. It's an important part of the metabolism, which is responsible for several biological functions. For example, methylation, you know, we can go up to the epigenetic regulation. Other part of it is oh, well. aminopropylation. It creates polyamines mm-hmm. in one of the pathways. There is also part transsulfuration that leads to creating some antioxidants like glutathione. Uh, mm-hmm. Also, it's connected with the folate cycle and folate cycle is connected with other cycles. So it has many biological implications and disruptions. Mm-hmm. And one of the central metabolites in this pathway is homocysteine, which is generated as a byproduct of that of that cycle. Mm-hmm. And it's relatively toxic, especially in high concentrations. And there are several pathways how it's being metabolized further, either it's cleared through the transulfation or it's recycled through gramatylation. Through two different pathways,
0: and so you studied this this pathway in the context of both Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease in brain tissues. Um, so what what you dis- just discussed now is actually nicely summarized in the first figure of the paper. I really like this in in publications when. P- will take the time to show how the metabolites they talk about are interconnected in a pathway that combines the pathways that you would usually find in KEG or things like this, like to combine the knowledge from the different pathways to focus on what your paper is about that is usually more than a single pre-made pathway. Then you identify the metabolites that were quantified in your experiment and the ones that were not, and then also the enzymes and cofactors that are needed for this. I find this very useful. Very educational for the people who may not be experts in a given pathway, but then can follow the story when they read the paper. Thank you for doing this. <laughs> and uh, and it's actually one of the reasons why I invited you to the podcast because I, I was at your talk last year at the metabolomics conference where you presented this work and I heard your talk exactly for that reason because you talked about the different pathways and you went through it. In a way that really helped the the people who were listening in this case, because it was talk really helped us to to follow the story that you were taking us through. So, what did you find out in your in your analysis? You we're interested in this Parkinson's and Alzheimer's brain. You saw that there were these effects in the one carbon metabolism, the homocysteine levels, and what did you discover?
1: So, the most important finding from this paper from this experiment was that if you look at the groups of pd with dementia versus two without dementia or even uh, subgroups those with mild cognitive impairment or completely cognitive Mm -hmm. you might see some small changes but if you go into interaction with the parkinson medication that is called levodopa he discovered that there is a huge difference in the interaction, that the groups who have dementia, when they have the drug in their system, in the tissue, there is a huge increase in homocysteine. And we do not observe this in the PD patients without dementia. That was really fascinating, that at the first sight it was not visible. But mm-hmm. when you do the subgroup analysis, you you notice this huge difference.
0: Yeah. So wh- which information did you need to reach that finding? You needed to know s- details about your sample, so the metadata, right? Uh, right. But,
1: you know, the, they, they will not tell you if they mm-hmm. had the drug at the time of that because all, all of them were using the drug throughout their lives. Now, here, we were looking at the acute presence in the disease, and we did that by measuring directly the levels of the VivoDopa, and then we could stratify the patients for those who had the high level, abnormally high, than normal Mm -hmm. people have, which means they had the medication.
0: That's really an interesting finding, because it has huge implications for treatment, I guess.
1: Yes, because the levodopa was already thought about having potentially negative impact on the patients. And this is because part of the drug is metabolically deactivated and metabolized into homocysteine eventually. And it was not sure if it can have big influence, but the homocysteine is known to be associated with cognitive impairment dementia with various vascular changes i think for the first time this was a study in a real human brain that showed the strong evidence that it's the drug that makes the homocysteine level goes up really a lot Mm -hmm. those susceptible patients some And and they develop the dementia
0: Mm-hmm. And is your lab, or do you know if other labs are trying to prove this this effect of the legodopa? Or not yet?
1: I do know about it. I know there are some prospective studies who were measuring the effect of legodopa, but of course they cannot get the piece of brain. Mm-hmm. They are using other biomarkers. Mm-hmm. Sometimes they do the scanning of the brain and seeing the changes, and... Actually, there are some indications that the drug can make the decline faster.
0: Mm -hmm. So what was the the most important thing you learned maybe in this study for your own work? To highlight the most important maybe finding or what to take
1: from this study is that Mm -hmm. you really do have to look at the subgroups in the patients that, that can tell you really valuable information. But Also, notice that this difference was seen only in certain situations upon the medication challenge, we think about it. So in the baseline, you wouldn't be able to see this. That's why it's important to uh, research also the dynamicity, what what happens, how the metabolism changes when some input changes.
0: Okay, thank you. So let's go to the second paper that is also, was also a big part of your PhD thesis, I guess, is titled Targeted Metabolomics Analysis in Alzheimer's Disease, Plasma, and Brain Tissue in Non-Hispanic Whites, and was published in the Journal of Alzheimer's Disease. Like for the first one, do you maybe want to explain to us what happened in this paper?
1: Also here in this study, we had two tissue cohorts, we had those brands, the cortex, Mm -hmm. and also plasma for another group of Alzheimer's people. And we, we performed a broad targeted scan. It includes the lipidomics mm-hmm. and we found many similarities in the changes that we observed in the brain and in plasma that it was mm-hmm. quite fascinating that there were so many overlaps that, that we detected. Uh-
0: yes. It's always a question when you have a disease that's primarily focused in an organ, does the metabolomics in the blood, is it really relevant to the disease? So in this case, it would suggest that what you see in blood, or for at least for some biochemical classes, is also a reflection of what is changing the brain in the patients. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yes. Well, for- one
1: of the important areas was some microbiome related metabolites. We we didn't measure the microbiome uh, directly like DNA sequencing but Mm -hmm. we measured the metabolites that get into the human body and are facilitated by the microbiome Mm function and some of them were changed in the plasma, they were changed in the very specifically pathological direction that those that are harmful for the body, they were up in Alzheimer's Mm -hmm. disease and those Protective, they were down. That was very interesting, and mm. some of those microbial metabolites we also found in the brain, and that that's just another evidence of the existing gut brain interaction, and that it can perhaps be relevant to the disease because of the pathological direction of the changes. Mm-hmm.
0: Yes, and it's always interesting to go beyond the obvious because. When you study brain, then the first instinct is to go look into the metabolites that are expected to be in the brain. But when you expand a bit your horizons and look, for example, at what comes from the microbiome, then you find really interesting things. I think it's a a good direction to go. One thing that you did in this paper is also you tried to summarize in different ways the results that you got. So you you show the, the results at the individual metabolite levels. And then you did different types of combinations. So either calculating metabolism indicators, like ratios or sums of metabolites or scoring based on pathways from different databases. Can you explain a bit the different strategies you chose and how you did it and why you chose those ones? Mm -hmm.
1: So what you measure is the metabolites. That's your basic measurements. We, We all know that, but to put it into context. It's good to realize how the metabolites are connected into Mm. pathways, for example. And if you look at changes across pathways, you do so-called pathway analysis. Sometimes it's not easy if you don't have enough coverage for each pathway, but if you do, it can be quite useful because it's like a different resolution of the findings. And for that, we wanted to use some existing software, but we didn't find any that would have the function that we wanted from it to have. For example, handling covariates. You know, some of those pathways where you just input some data, but they know nothing about your metadata, and that's very important Mm -hmm. in especially. Yes. So, so we, we developed our own approach. We we combine existing methods and, and make it tailored to to our needs. And we look at the changes in terms of the pathway.
0: Yeah, it's often something that happens. So either you're lucky and you have a tool that does exactly what you want or you end up creating your own tool. Is it something you think you'll use again then, or it was really tailored to this specific experiment? And, because you might then have opportunities to use it in, in your next metabolomic studies, huh?
1: So the, this was tailored for that assay that we had, because mm-hmm. I, I mapped those compounds to the pathways. And, you know, if you have a different assay, you mm-hmm. have to adjust, obviously. But, but the, the same approach could be used. Yes, mm-hmm. it can be just adjusted. The second uh, part that you asked about the metabolic ratios, that's again you can go back. That you measure the metabolites, mm-hmm. but what you really want to know is the metabolic flow through the back weights. And for that, to be able to calculate, you would have to know all the protein enzymatic dynamics mm-hmm. and you know sometimes it follows the Michaelis menten equation sometimes there are several orders of interactions mm-hmm. and it's quite challenging but if you think about it it usually boils down a ratio of the product of the equation and the substrate Yeah, and even though you don't really now the contributions of different substrates, for example, but it, it's a relatively nice estimate how mm-hmm. what the flow is.
0: And in this in this study, did it get you closer to understanding your data to to use these different strategies?
1: Yes, I think the metabolic indicators, and those ratios, they are very helpful. But also because you can summarize some data, like you you measure hundred different triglycerides or more mm-hmm. but you want to look at them also in a sum or in some of the various subgroups of the mm-hmm. and if you use those indicators it does this basically dimensional reduction not yeah. comparing to using like pca or other a general dimensional reduction technique this is like inspired by the biological knowledge. So it has a meaning and that's why Mm -hmm. it's very helpful.
0: So in this paper, you also have a very interesting approach where you create diagnostic prediction models for each matrix. Can you explain a bit what those are and what they take for input and what's their output?
1: You probably refer to to those biomarker analysis that, that I performed there.
0: In the paper, it's called the diagnostic prediction model. So that's why I use that, uh, that phrase. Mm-hmm.
1: So uh, in this part, we tried the classic machine learning to predict how we could divide the patients and predict if they had the disease or if they don't have the disease based on their metabolome and metadata also. People do machine learning and they do it completely separately from a statistical perspective, but in a sense, it's very related. Statistics and machine learning, that's just the different ways of the same thing. And so try to do this machine learning approach to evaluate the performance of a possible predictor and we did a proper cross-validation. That's important. Sometimes people do cross-validation, but they don't do it the right way. You don't realize that sometimes we have validate just parameters of that algorithm. Like
0: okay, so algorithm. can you explain the correct way to do it? So that people so that, will know from now on and they have no excuse?
1: So the correct way to do it is to do a nested cross-validation. That you do first in the inner loop, you cross-validate just the parameter for your algorithm. Mm-hmm. The hyperparameter parameter is the best one, but then what you train this model, you use on a separate board, on an outer validation group. Uh, and that's why it's called mm-hmm. nested cross validation. Okay. You always have to evaluate the model on data that were not used for training or optimizing.
0: Yeah. yeah, this is the golden rule of machine learning, right? <laughs>
1: yeah,
0: exactly.
1: Yeah. And many times, I've seen in peer-reviewed publications that the authors first perform some kind of feature selection where they select top metabolites, for example using statistical testing. And then this selection is put into a machine learning algorithm and cross validated And this approach obviously violates the golden rule because the selection is made from the whole data set instead of just the training set. And so the results are necessarily biased.
0: And so, what did you find out with these prediction models? Were they any good? Would you recommend them? Do you think they need work?
1: <laughs> so, <laughs> what I found out was obviously not the perfect performance. It was around the 80% area uh, under uh, the ROC curve, if I remember
0: yeah. correctly. But I mean, if you found perfect performance, you would be suspicious, right? Yes. That, that's so awesome. it's good that it's not perfect.
1: <laughs> yes. But what we could see from the metabolites that we selected, because we started with all the metabolites at once and we were reducing them gradually up to there and seeing what is the performance at different levels of use metabolites and we saw that when we use you know all 600 metabolites or if we can also combine with the ratios over 800 measurements uh, there would be certain performance and then you will reduce the numbers of metabolites that you use and the performance doesn't really change much at least not at mm-hmm. the beginning but when we came down to about maybe 50 metabolites or 30 metabolites, suddenly the decrease in the predictive performance was uh, significant. And that that can tell us that all those 30 different metabolites, usually coming from different pathways, all of them contribute somehow to the disease. Mm -hmm. And in a way, that was very expected because we know that those diseases both parkinson's and alzheimer's they are multifactorial there is not a single cause for them they are influences from you know your environment your nutrition lifestyle your various diseases well, your genetic mm-hmm. makeup and all all of them are important combining them together you get some power to the prediction
0: mm-hmm. And in the models, if I remember correctly, you use both the metabolites and some of the sums and ratios that you calculated. Is that right? Yeah, I think so. And do you correct in any way for kind of redundancies in some of the metabolites because the ones that are used in a ratio, for example, they would be there as single metabolites and they would also be represented as parts of a ratio. Do you have any way of correcting for this kind of overrepresentation in this kind of models?
1: This specific model? We didn't do any such correction, but Mm -hmm. the correction is that that they would be simply removed if they are not important.
0: Okay. So, and I have already a sense of the answer to the question, but when you analyze metabolomic data, do you rather use pre-made pipelines or pre-made softwares, or do you write your own scripts and build the tools that you need as you go?
1: Yes, there is a... (laughs) Simple answer, I I like to use my own tools and there are several reasons for that. So we can start with the transparency, you know, in science, the transparency is very important and if you write your own scripts, you know what you are doing, you know what is happening and you can even publish those scripts in a supplement to the paper and People can validate and find out if something is wrong. Mm -hmm. If you use somebody else's software, it's kind of a black box for you Mm -hmm. that there is not really much of a transparency. But also there is a question about the responsibility. So if something is wrong and you write the script, obviously it's your responsibility and it's up to you and so that you try to actually debug it properly to, to make it Correct. But if you use somebody else, they are not liable for your research.
0: Sure. But I mean, in this case, as someone who can write your own scripts, you're in a comfortable position. But if like me, you don't know how to program uh, your own tools, you need to rely on other people. And in that case, so let's say if we were collaborating, I would rely on you to write the script. And of course, you would take responsibility if there was a mistake. But I would still decide that I can trust Karel and I will uh, ask him to do that script for me. And the, in that sense, it can also work.
1: Uh-huh. But so, uh, also the tools that are made for the metabolomics research, you know, they, they yeah. are being developed recently, but we still need to realize that they are not mature enough often. They mm-hmm. provide some basic functionality, but mm-hmm. if it's not always what you want, what, what is the best, what is the optimal approach for your research, and that's what making your own script is uh, beneficial. It's very flexible. You, you can yeah. adjust the way you want. You are not looking for some software and then you are saying, oh, I wish it could do this or this, or do it a little bit differently. Here, if you write your own, you, you are the one in control.
0: Yes, I see. Thank you. Yeah. So let's discuss the biological interpretation and especially in the first paper, there's a lot of it. What was your experience of this? Because I mean, coming from the world of more data science, bioinformatics, maybe this was your first contact with interpretation of, of biological Mm -hmm. data. How was this for you?
1: Yes, yes. it was a, it was a learning process. And I I can tell that at the beginning, perhaps with with those two papers that were already published, that's probably the start, how I was starting the interpretation. And now with the papers that are coming, I think I improved in my ability to actually do some interpretation.
0: Of course, it's also learning by doing for this, it's the same as the analytics.
1: (laughs) So, So, yeah, the working is to. Always remember that it was a one that you cannot really claim any causal relationships, but th- that's fine. You just have to remember and not overstate your finding mm-hmm. uh even then it for me personally the most exciting part of the research process to do the interpretation and to come up with the new hypothesis what can be wrong what can be the reason for those there are several well you really have to go and spend time on doing the interview you really have to search through literature and investigate all the metabolites all the pathways mm-hmm. and so just to mention of Aspects that you have to take into account. We can say that the most basic things is the pathway, how the metabolites relate together, what pathway they are connected, and sometimes they are one metabolite is a part of multiple pathways. Then you can see if there is a pattern across the whole pathway and how it looks. If, for example, just one thing is elevated, or if it's elevated and then some downstream metabolites tend to be elevated but perhaps in a decreasing method Mm -hmm. or things like this such patterns can can tell you that there might be a problem with overproduction or perhaps that the clearance the downstream metabolism there is some bottleneck or Mm -hmm. things like that another thing is some pathways have many intermediate metabolites that you don't measure. And you don't know their values and you have to remember them. Uh, Then from other dimensions, you look where, where those enzymes that are responsible for those reactions are located. And sometimes you find out that they are specific for certain organs and this pathway is not really going on in the tissue that you have. Yes. Or sometimes it's a single organelle. For example, some enzymes are in peroxisomes and work in peroxisomes under the specific pH. And that can explain some changes that you see and that can tell you that the problem is there in the peroxisome's Let's. Mm-hmm.
0: I see you've had quite some interesting experiences. It was really good.
1: <laughs> yeah, that, yeah, and that's just the beginning. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, you have metabolic regulations there are feedback loops that one metabolic controls the rate of those enzymatic reactions in other parts of the pathway or in a different part. That needs to be taken into account. Uh, sometimes, what can help with interpretation is also checking correlations between. metabolites in in the pathway and it can Mm -hmm. tell you it can tell you something you wouldn't be able to see without checking the correlations and it was in that first paper that you mentioned the one carbon metabolism and there was a nice example where for example in the pd groups when we check correlation between homocysteine and the folates you know that there is a pathway Mm-hmm. That helps remethylate the homocysteine through folate. Mm-hmm. And there was a pretty much nice correlation that the more folates you have, the, the less homocysteine you have, that the pathway works. But specifically in the PD group with dementia, the correlation didn't exist. Mm-hmm. So no matter what your level of folates were, it, it didn't affect the homocysteine level. And that can tell you that perhaps. This pathway is a bottleneck. It doesn't work in that Mm -hmm. group. You know, there are more things to consider.
0: Uh, how do you find those same things? Like, is it a matter of sitting down with your data for a while and with the literature as well, and just start seeing things or you start imagining and then go check if, if it makes sense or not? Is it like this for you as well, or what's your experience?
1: Yeah, A big part of it is really going through the literature, finding the relations, and then you also have to be kind of creative to be able to find new ways how to look at the data. If you use some tools or what other people, it's not always the best for your project. You, You have specific data set, you have specific information for the data, and there are ways how to incorporate it. And I can tell that even if you look in the databases, the cake or the bad ways, or you can have some Brenda enzymes for enzymatic data, for example, what is the feedback regulations, they are sometimes not complete, and you cannot see all the connections there. Sometimes they are not known, sometimes they are just not there, but you can find it. In the literature and here I, I can give a very specific example mm-hmm. in the paper that, that is right now in the process of being published we saw some changes in, in, again in the brain in physical, with, with dementia and cognitive impairment there were changes in glutamate aspartate and those metabolites are produced in the brain and they are usually cleared out to, to the plasma and the rest of them mm-hmm. and we saw similar elevations in some other metabolites and one of them was alpha amino acid mm-hmm. and we didn't see any connection between them but when we checked that there was quite interesting correlation i spent lots of time trying to figure it out how it, how it could happen, because once you trust your data, if you have confidence in your data, then exactly, so you know there is an explanation.
0: Yeah, then the explanation must be in the biology.
1: Yes, and then I found out in a paper that was published 30 years ago, yeah. and it's you know it's not in a machine-readable form, yes. so it's not probably even processed in those databases. Mm-hmm. But it made experiment where it clearly showed that. This alpha amino adipic acid was neurotoxic by modulating the channels of clearance of glutamate outside. Mm-hmm. And suddenly it perfectly fit our hypothesis or what we were seeing it explain it. So mm-hmm. we can tell that because this metabolite is elevated, it can. Uh, hinder the clearance of glutamate out of the brain. And glutamate and asparta, they are in the deeper in mm-hmm. That's why we saw the elevation of both of them.
0: It's very mm-hmm. interesting. Mm-hmm. And
1: what, what was also additional evidence for this is that we had some plasma samples and we could see that in plasma, those amino acids were down, surprisingly. Mm-hmm. And again, that explains that perhaps it's the clearance from the brain that the flux is not going out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's really thing, cool. And this is interesting. When you search for some metabolite in literature, yeah. you, you read some things. But later I realized that what they call by this metabolite is actually a different one. And this was a Case in methylhistidine. We have mm-hmm. one methylhistidine and three methylhistidine. Yes. And some literature use them in a different way because of some historic reasons, mm-hmm. and it, it's not immediately apparent. or later. Yeah. That, that's mm-hmm. very.
0: We've also Mm -hmm. been confronted to to this story of the one and three metal histidine. I've heard of this before. Mm -hmm. It's really complicated. Of course, the worst is when the names are used interchangeably, but it's bad enough when you're looking for information about one metabolite and you realize that 10 years ago they used to call it something else. Mm -hmm. And then you have to search the older literature with completely different names. Yes. Can you please tell us about your favorite metabolite and why it's your favorite metabolite?
1: Yeah, there are many interesting metabolites, but for me, I think at least as of now, uh, the favorite one is uh, betaine. And Mm -hmm. by betaine, I mean the glycine betaine, three metal glycine. It's just a tillated version of glycine with three Mm -hmm. metal residues. And it is naturally occurring compound. It's in in some nutrition or some food. Mm -hmm. It's it's also synthesized in the body from poly uh, it plays a direct role in the remethylation of the homocysteine mm-hmm. it also serves as an osmoprotectant and uh, recently there's been some evidence that it's implicated in many other functions around the body that it can have a various antioxidant properties that is anti-inflammatory it can interact with the nf-kappa-beta pathway with ampk that that regulates the lipid homeostasis and well that it can affect many parts of metabolism and that that it could be very very good very beneficial metabolic and specifically in my research i found it that It was very well correlated with the MMSE score. It's a score of, let's say, cognitive decline Mm -hmm. in the PD cohort. And surprisingly, we saw the same down regulation of this metabolite was seen in Alzheimer's disease brain in them. So it, it can have some really good neuroprotective effect probably Mm -hmm. but it definitely needs more research Mm -hmm. and clinical studies to really validate if it's just a side effect for some reason or if it's the causal part
0: thanks you've made this really interesting actually now i understand why it's your favorite (laughs) And it's also a very good example of metabolites with names that can be confusing, because with beta, in different people can mean different things. So thanks for specifying the one that you mean from the beginning. It's really important. <laughs> Thank you very much for talking with me today. Thank you for participating in this podcast.
1: Thank you for inviting me, and in. it was my pleasure to share some of my experience.
0: Thank you for joining us in this discussion. I hope that this episode gave you new insights and ideas on how to plan, conduct, and communicate your own metabolomic projects, and that you're excited for the future clinical applications of metabolomics. If you'd like to continue this journey with us, make sure to register for the Metabolomist email list on the podcast webpage, themetabolomist.com. If you want to learn more about how data interpretation is done, check out my book on the story principle at biocrates.com slash the story principle. For regular news on metabolomics and data interpretation, you can follow me, Alice Limonciel, on LinkedIn, where I post on metabolites, analysis strategies, data processing tools, and more. And make sure to check out our other podcast episodes on the Metabolomist website.